This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. The deal is you need to educate yourself and not just like read white fragility and be like, oh my God, that's so terrible. I've had such an awakening, black square. Like you need to continue to educate yourself in the direction of how am I benefiting? What is, where am I complicit? And then find ways in your own life to give up unearned wealth and power. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today's conversation is a long time coming. Marguerite Martin is the pod auntie. Uh, this show does not exist without Marguerite. Back in 2016, she had me on her show, Move to Tacoma, which was the original show basically here on the Channel 253 Network. And her and I had a conversation uh, that I really enjoyed having, and I'll put that conversation in the show notes. And from that conversation, I built a friendship. Uh, Marguerite is a realtor, is a friend of mine, and is somebody who really interrogates the complexity of her work as a realtor. And in this conversation, you're going to hear her, you're going to hear her talking a lot about how she, as a white person who understands her privilege and benefits, is working to dismantle the systems that she knows she benefits from, also why benefiting from those systems. And that's a level of complexity and nuance that like I appreciate because it's advocacy that's forthright. Um, anyway. Marguerite had me on her show. And then afterwards, we went out and talked for another two hours and became fast friends. From that conversation, uh, Marguerite asked me to be the guest host of Mutatacoma. And then Marguerite became the launching sponsor of the Nerd Farmer podcast. And so she is somebody who I have great affection for. And I hope that comes across in the conversation. Uh, in addition, she is somebody who without, without her, the show does not exist. And so we're going to talk today about real estate. This is the continuation of a conversation that we've been having. Uh, this is the continuation of the conversation we had with the folks from Tacoma Housing Now, and I'm sure that's going to come up in this episode. And it's also a continuation of the conversation we had with Jasmine Jefferson, who's a realtor and friend of Marguerite, who also I'm sure will come up in this conversation. And so if you haven't heard those episodes, you might want to go back and listen to them also, but this episode stands by itself. And so I guess without much further ado, I want to bring Marguerite on the show. So let's get there. Marguerite, it's been a long time. Welcome back to the show. Well, actually, not even welcome back to the show. Just welcome to the show. First time going this direction. I'm so excited to be here. It only took you four and a half years to invite me on your show after I invited you on my show. That was petty, but that's fine. I earned that. I earned that. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. Given the nature of my audience, people either know everything about you because they're Channel 253 lifers and have been around since day one, or they're mm -hmm. like, who is this Marguerite person and why is Nathan calling this white woman the pot auntie? Uh, could you just walk yeah, why through really fast? do you call me that? <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about why. Can you just walk through really fast? Like, what is Move to Tacoma and like, what is your involvement here with the network? And like, what is, what is your, your work at the moment? So I've been a realtor since 2005. Um, I, when I was 25 years old, I got my license 
And about uh, 10 years into that, I was feeling very bored and had this idea. I was talking to some Seattle real estate agent friends about how awful their real estate market was. And our market in Tacoma was still upside down. So we had this conversation. I was like, oh my God, hashtag move to Tacoma. Like, why are people buying in Seattle when Tacoma is so much better? And I created a website and a podcast. And my idea was I would talk to people on the podcast, not about real estate, but just about what it was like to live in Tacoma. So tell people stories who'd moved to Tacoma and tell people stories who'd always lived here. And basically give people Googling Tacoma who were moving here something to look at other than man, all the crap that was on the internet about Tacoma. Like everything you Googled about Tacoma back in 2015 was terrible. So you and Anne were kind of my entree into real estate conversations and housing conversations. Mm -hmm. And somehow housing has become an issue that I think I talk on this show more than I talk about education, which is funny given Mm -hmm. my background. Mm -hmm. And so I'm bringing you on today for a continuing conversation that started with Jasmine a while ago about housing. And what I appreciate about you is that you have a sense of clarity about things and a sense of like (sighs) express pessimism, but also like passion for justice about this work that like other folks, other folks don't have. And so I kind of want to walk through your understanding of housing in Tacoma with the understanding that if we're talking about Tacoma, we're talking about Sacramento, we're talking about Oakland, we're talking about Providence and so on and so on and so on. And Seattle so, and Portland, like yeah, they're just yeah, yeah. further down the path. Yeah. San so Francisco. I, let, let, let's, let's, let's start there. Let's start there. If, if housing patterns that exist in Tacoma continue at the rate that they are going, and policy changes are not put in place to expand the number of units being built. Like, what is the near-term future for our dear city? Well, um, prices went up 15% year over year last year. So I don't know if you know that the median home price in Tacoma is now 450. If that happens again, we'll be over 500. That means that in order to buy a house in Tacoma, I mean, depending on your down payment, if you have some generational wealth, this might not apply, but you'll have to make a lot of money to buy a house in Tacoma. And most people in Pierce County don't make a lot of money. I mean, you know, it's median family income, 75,000, I think. So we're going to, we're going to price out our community. We've already priced out most of our community, but we'll price out the rest. I have to wonder, cause like sometimes the way you perceive things is shaped by like the time that you're on earth and like your, your adulthood shapes the way that you kind of see everything. Mm-hmm. So like, I know that I basically became a functioning adult, like able to like consume and buy things during the housing collapse of 2008. Lucky dog. For Right. So for, for <laughs> folks, no, no, like it's timing, right? So for the benefit of people who maybe are not Tacoma centric, but like are listening to this conversation, like what has happened in the Tacoma real estate market basically mm-hmm. over the last 12 years? When I bought my first house, the median price in Pierce County was $275,000. And the interest rate was, I think, six and a half percent, 2004, 2005. And then at the bottom of the market, the trough, as some people call it, when my best friend bought her house, when I was terrified for her, because the prices had been going down for years, she bought her house in Proctor for $192,000. The median price was, I believe, $175,000 for the county. And interest rates had already fallen at that point to the fives, maybe the high fours. And then from there, things started to slowly climb. Even in 2015, though, when I started moving to Tacoma, we hadn't got all our value back. But basically, if you bought a house when I started moved to Tacoma, your house has doubled in value. For the last three or four years, we've been named as the hottest real estate market in the country. So while we are 
typical of what people in other communities are looking. We are like the worst case scenario. And our rental market also keeps showing up on lists. And this isn't, the problem is like, we know these people are coming. We have known these people are coming. You can go to my website, Get Real Tacoma and find articles I wrote in 2013. Like, don't worry, everybody. The largest generation in home buying history is going to be head of household and building rates are at their lowest rates since World War II. Like, we are definitely going to run out of houses and prices will recover. Like, I wrote that article in 2013. I mean, mostly hoping and praying. I'm not a housing expert. Like, I'm just a real estate agent. But like, I wrote it because I read it and it seemed true. And it's true. And we didn't build and we don't have enough housing. And the people who, this is the important part because I, the, the part of the conversation, I'd love to, if we could just keep coming back to complicity. If you are a homeowner, a white homeowner in particular in any community in this country, like you're complicit. Like nobody in this situation gets to abscond or get rid of their responsibility, right? Like you have to take ownership of your part. You're benefiting from the oppression and the exclusion of other people. And that's how the housing market's set up. Could you unpack that a little bit? Because like you say that, I nod, Doug nods, but like, why, why do you say that? Okay. Because let's say I, let's say my best friend who bought her house in Proctor in 2011 managed to get in there without generational wealth, but with, you know, her two income marriage, right? She buys the $192,000 house when a lot of other people are out of jobs and unable to do so. Like she's able to get the loan. She's able to get in, in the down market. A lot of people were not able to get into that market because of unemployment, right? So she buys her house and it, I mean, it would have, I mean, that house is probably worth 610 now. She bought it for 192 in 2011. She doesn't live there anymore. She sold it a few years ago, but let's say she was still there. So now it's worth six something, right? all of that equity that she's gained is because they haven't built any more houses in Proctor. And if she was in Proctor benefiting from that wealth gain while other people are excluded, like she's complicit. And I would also add, if she was, it doesn't even matter if she's advocating for lack of density, if she's not advocating for density, which by the way is against her best interest, because if more houses are built in Proctor, her house becomes less valuable. Do you see how messed up this is? So it's so easy for people to just be like, I don't know, I hate those NIMBYs, but look at my, look at my Zillow's estimate, right? Like this is, the, there's nothing, once you get on the property ladder, and I know you've tackled this with Jasmine because I listened to that episode, you have nothing to gain from density. You have nothing to gain from additional housing stock and everything to lose. So if the people who are benefiting from the housing market as is are homeowners and homeowners tend to be more middle class because how the F do you buy a home otherwise? And they are the people that dominate the civic culture in communities. Like, how do you un-F this cycle? This is the thing I can't get my head around. Like, how do you un-F this? Well, the call needs to come from inside the house, Nate. <laughs> I mean, what we need is, um, for example, I met this woman in Portland, Lauren Gaucher, and she's involved uh, with a nonprofit there called Taking Leadership or Taking Ownership. And what they've done is they've created a fund where white realtors like give up some of their money and put it into a nonprofit. And that money goes to helping black homeowners keep their homes, prevent displacement right? Because you can own a house that you bought in the seventies for $80,000. That's now worth seven fifty. And how do you spend $10,000 on the gutters when you're on SSI, right? Like, sure. so that's one nice thing, but somebody else that heard about that group had a better idea. There was a white woman that owned a rental property an investment property that had generational wealth and she had bought it for two thirty. It's now worth, I think six something. Mm -hmm. And she sold it to a 
black man who'd been displaced in that, who'd grown up in that neighborhood who could no longer buy. And she sold it to him for the cost of the loan. There's a couple of terms in this conversation I think are worth unpacking and kind of talking through really fast. Sure. So like Jasmine's a generational wealth. You've used generational wealth. I, I think it's self-evident what that term means, but at the same time, oh, I sure. still want to kind of unpack that a little bit. So yeah. like, what, what, what do you mean by generational wealth and where does this generational wealth come from? Who has it? You know, honestly, Nathan, like I heard that term and I didn't really understand it until you explained it to me. So the way that I always explain it to other people. <laughs> 2016, you gave a talk at a conference, your realtor and my dear friend, Ann Jones, gave in Tacoma. And you explained it like this. In the, I believe your mom bought her house in the 60s before the Fair Housing Act. She was steered towards Hilltop, which is the historically black neighborhood in Tacoma. You have a friend whose mom and dad were steered to a different neighborhood in the North End. They bought a very similar sized home. uh, And those houses have basically like the difference in equity in those houses was like $250,000 by the time their kids were old enough to go to college. So the question you asked us realtors for reflection, quiet re- reasoning time with our partners. Uh, well, wow, you actually remember my shtick. Oh, my whole, I've seen that video like career. 100 times. You guys think like all my awards are happening right now. This is all the stuff that I do. <laughs> Dang it. So, yeah, and we we talked about, well, what, and, and that was the breaking point for a lot of very conservative, meritocracy-oriented realtors in the room when you said, what could her family do with the $250,000? Start a business, send their kids to college. And I think everybody in the room just went, oh, shoot, yeah. So that's generational wealth. And we can see, like, neighborhoods are, as you've pointed out many times, more segregated than before the Housing Act was created. Black wealth has been reduced since the Fair Housing Act was created. So whatever we're doing as white people, whatever we're doing as majority white institutions, majority white realtors, majority white legislators, like to resolve racism, it seems like it's not working because black wealth is decreasing. So if you're a white homeowner increasing your wealth through, uh, through property, like you're benefiting from a system. You have, un- the thing is like, I, I, the thing I keep thinking about and what I talk about with my white friends is like, we talk about white privilege, but that's unearned wealth. That is unearned privilege. So if you have a house in a neighborhood that is doubled in value in five years while other families were displaced and you look at the numbers and the majority of those folks are people of color, what do you owe communities of color? Like what portion of your unearned wealth do you owe? That's a great question to ask yourself. The other term I wanted you to unpack, you just used again, displacement. So I feel like we talk about gentrification and displacement as they're the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've been reading and arguing recently that like these are separate processes, that mm-hmm. gentrification is about improvement and displacement is about like losing people from the community. Mm-hmm. I just defined the word I was going to ask you to define. So let me ask it differently then. Okay. Um, Thank you. I'm glad you defined it. <laughs> so you're seeing, so displacement has happened in North Portland. North Portland used to be like the black part of town. Uh, my cousins and family who were in Portland were in Port- North Portland in Northeast. Like I have yeah. very fond memories of that. They're now in Clackamas in the Burbs. It's already happened. Yep. The numbers. What will displacement look like when it, and we, and for the record, we've also seen it in South Seattle, right? I, I'm going to argue we haven't seen it all the way in Tacoma and Hilltop. What yeah. will displacement look like when it, Oh, you're making the face. Go ahead. Go ahead. You don't think it's happened in Tacoma? Well, so I mean, you I talked about happened. it four and a half years ago. You talked about how, you know, and, and I have to be very careful as a realtor. I'm not even allowed to talk about, I, I was listening to that interview with you where I actually said, oh yeah, that's the black neighborhood. And I was like, oh crap, I am not allowed to say that as a realtor. But you know that the neighborhoods that used to be the, I'm making air quotes, black neighborhoods in Tacoma moved to a different side of the freeway, Right. 
So yeah. that, that, that migration within the city has already happened. You know, Jasmine will say like, well, you know, she would love to start a website called move back to Tacoma for black folks who were displaced from Tacoma. Something she said to me a couple of times, right? Like it's already happening. And I, I have to be careful about how I talk about it because like you could have white listeners listening to this and saying like, Oh, now I know what neighborhoods to avoid, which is why we're not supposed to ever talk about the sure. even though it's so stupid because like it's institutional colorblindness because people can just go on an app and not only find out the racial composition and the economic layout of a neighborhood, they can find out how their neighbors voted. Right. Like it's so stupid the way our fair housing laws are set up. They don't do anything, but anyway, I'm still bound by that. No. So there's, there's a train of thought that I want to kind of interrogate in this conversation and particularly where we're going with it. So you're talking about how white families have been able to build generational wealth through home ownership. And how black families have been basically set back in their home ownership uh, in the period post Fair Housing Act. But I, I feel like the, the, the turd and the punch. The, so the, the turd and the punch in that conversation, though, is is what happened to black families during the housing collapse. And this is a story I think doesn't get told very often. I'm wondering, walk me through because I, I I'm sitting here. I'm also somebody that bought a house in 2011. I bought at the bottom of the market. The mm -hmm. house that I bought is worth twice what I paid for it. And so I dodged a fat-ass bullet, apparently, uh, on timing the market, which is awful capitalist terminology, but we're going to use it for right now. Specifically, what happened to Black familial wealth and the Black home ownership stock during the collapse in 2008? So I think, first of all, for any white people that lost their house that they bought in 2005, 2006 with some crappy ass predatory loan. It's not that white people didn't lose houses. Plenty of white people lost houses. Mm -hmm. But because of institutional racism, like the bounce back for white people was much better than the bounce back for black folks. And I, I, I think if we're going to talk about this in Tacoma terms, like thinking about the Hilltop neighborhood. So a lot of people and uh, there were, uh, we had the highest rate of foreclosure in the state in Pierce County. Like for a little while there, 68% of the houses were either short sales or foreclosures. So it was very rare to find a normal person selling their house because why would a normal person in a fair market situation sell their house at a 35, 36, 40% loss of value or sometimes even more, right? So you could go to Hilltop and you could see all these houses that were owned by banks that would be like Wells Fargo owned this house. That was the seller of the house. And this is what happened is the houses would be in really bad condition after foreclosure or in short sale, right? They would have all these problems. And if you're a first time buyer trying to buy a house, the house has to be in a certain level of condition for the bank to finance it, right? And the banks weren't really at large willing to make those repairs. So the only people that could buy them were investors or people with a lot of cash. So what happened was you had a lot of flippers. So the flippers would come in and these were, I mean, I don't want to say exclusively white, but I, there were very few white investor flip or black. No, we looked at a flippers. ton of flips in 2011. Right. We saw right. a ton on Hilltop. Like so the flippers would come in, yeah. they'd buy the $80,000 house, sell it for 150, you know, turn around in 35, 40 days. So that person, you know, that probably, you know, that person that was able to buy it for more. So that person that bought it for 140 now owns that house worth 380, right? You know, a few years later. Now, the other thing that happened that we do not talk about enough was the institutional purchase of homes in Hilltop and across Pierce County. And those were f Wall Street firms that came in and bought 
hundreds of houses. So the reason, even though it took us for freaking ever to come out of that housing crash, the reason we actually came out as fast as we did was because people came and bought houses by the hundreds. Those houses are now rented back to the former homeowners of those communities if they can afford to rent them. If not, they're, they're being rented to like white gentrifiers, right? So yeah. I would just say that like this problem is, and, and this is the thing, like we have these conversations and what I want to prevent is it's like, oh my God, it's so big. And what I'm trying to do is make it very small and very specific. Each individual person, yes, we need to impact systems, but we need to own our own complicity and we need to give up our own benefit. And I will tell you from personal experience, when you start giving up your own freaking unearned generational wealth or your own unearned income, like you want to hold other people accountable because it feels like crap. It's like, once you start paying your taxes, you don't like, you don't think those stories about other people not paying their taxes are so funny anymore. Right? So I think like, yes, we need institutional change. We need government change. That's really overwhelming. We need systems change. We need all kinds of change, but individually you are still benefiting while we wait for that change. And if you're benefiting, what are you doing to give it up? Like you need to hold yourself accountable. You need to hold your friends accountable. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about the areas in which you feel like you've been wrong in the past, the areas in which <laughs> you feel like <laughs> you've already laughing, the areas in which wait. the policymakers are wrong and the areas mm. in which the do-gooders are wrong. Like mm. there's in this situation, it is so bad because so many people are wrong about so many fundamental things. <laughs> and I want to kind of walk through those with you. So sure. we'll be back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Nerd Farmer. When I'm not listening to podcasts, I'm listening to audiobooks, and I choose Libro FM. Libro has all the books I'm looking for with a low monthly subscription, and I'm not enriching the pockets of a certain billionaire when I use them. Here's some great reads slash listens I want you to try out on Libro. If you're an activist, check out Stacey Abrams' book, Our Time Is Now. We owe her so much after November. The least you can do is listen and hear what she has to say. For the woke or aspiring woke, check out Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a revelation about our country's social system. And for the nerds among you, my people, if you haven't read The Three-Body Problem, you owe it to yourself to start right now. The entire trilogy will take you places you've never been in science fiction. Libro has over 150,000 books in their catalog. So if those aren't right for you, you'll find something you like. Listeners of Channel 253 can start the service with a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code Tacoma. And we are back. I would like to, as always, thank you for downloading the show and giving us a listen. The Nerd Farmer Podcast, which is my favorite podcast, by the way, is part of the Channel 253 Network. Channel 253 is a network of podcasts based in the city of Tacoma, but with tentacles all over the world, including here in Abu Dhabi. If you like what you're hearing on the show, if you like these conversations, I'm going to ask you to open a web browser on your phone or your computer you're using right now, channel253.com slash membership. Memberships are $4 a month and $40 a year or, or $4 a year. And your membership dollars help us remain independent and honest. Uh, because we are member supported, we get to have conversations like this. There's lots of folks out there who who do not want to be behind this conversation, but this is a conversation that this community needs to have and is having mm -hmm. right now. So thanks for doing that. In addition, if you're listening to this on a device or a platform that allows you to leave a rating, please leave a rating for the podcast. Uh, five stars are great. And if you leave a great review, I will read it and I'll probably read it poorly. All right, back to it. Marguerite, listen, I, so here's the thing is that 
one of the things I, I love about myself, this sounds very vain, but just follow me on this is, is that like, I'm a generalist and I don't know, I'm not an expert on anything per se, but I know a little about a lot. I'm also somebody who like, likes changing my mind about things. And Same. there's a lot of things like in my lifetime that like I've thought about where I was like, ooh, in 2004, when I said blank, I was an asshole, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I want to talk through like, the, so the situation we're in with housing is a result of a lot of folks being wrong about a lot of different things. And yeah. so what I want to kind of work through is like, what are some things and some things, some things that are like common wisdom that people are just straight up wrong about? What are some things that you've been wrong about? What are things policymakers are wrong about? What are the do-gooders wrong about? So like, let's start with, the, let's start with, with just conventional wisdom. What's, what's wrong with the conventional wisdom about housing in the United States right now? I'll tell you like it, in 2015, 2016, when I really began to understand the housing implications of institutional racism, I was like, oh man, we have a problem that we need to fix. We need to make sure that black people are more educated about the opportunities of home ownership. What they need is more access. And this is where I'm going to put anybody that thinks like what you need is like down payment assistance for black folks. What you need is more education and personal finance education for black folks, like anything First like time that. First time homebuyers classes. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I remember talking to Jasmine and I know she's okay with me telling the story. It was a real problem in our relationship at the time, but we were talking about the hilltop and I was like, what we need is to make sure that they can't be displaced. We need to make sure that they own it already. So they can't be displaced. And she just, I don't think she could even talk to me like for months and she finally said, like, don't you think we've thought of that? <laughs> yeah. Like, don't you think that, like, we get how it works? And the problem is, is, like, those kinds of solutions, like, what you need is to get more Black people benefiting from an oppressive system. And once that happens, the system will cease to be oppressive. Like, I don't think that works. And that's something that was a very, I mean, it, it really... I'm, I'm really giving you the highlights of that conversation, but it was a real bump in our friendship and, a, and, and it really exposed a lot of like unconscious racism in the way that I see. It's very paternalistic thinking, right? Like if only black people had more knowledge and access to like tiny funds, then they would be able to enter this market and succeed in it. No, the whole thing, the whole thing, it, it, it's not enough. And, and, and the problem there, because the problem there, I just want to do one more little thing. White people in general and realtors, especially most white realtors, absolutely. And some some black realtors, some some realtors of color too, believe that this mechanism is a meritocracy, mm -hmm. that if you work hard and you get on the property ladder, you're going to be OK. And the people that are OK are people that worked hard and got on the property ladder and made the right moves and educated themselves and hustled and grinded. And those are the people that have the wealth now. And so they've earned it. And when you think you've earned it. Wait, You're not going to give it up. One more term to define. So you said property letter now. What's this property letter? Like, what's well, this concept of property letter? It's what we're talking about with you. So like you bought a house with your teacher salary in 2011. You know, let's just say you bought it for $200,000 and that house yes. is now worth four hundred. dollars right? That's yes, $200,000 of equity. You got on a little, like, think of it as an escalator. You got on the escalator in 2011. If somebody got on the escalator in 2015, they paid $300,000 for that house. That's now worth 400, right? The whole thing is just like, get on, climb on, climb on, which by the way, is how those black people were sold really shitty loans, really crappy loans in the, um, <laughs> in, you know, in the late aughts, right? You know, because it was like, just get on. Even if your rate is going to increase, it doesn't matter because the prices are going to go up, right? You've got to get on. You've got to get on. 
That's happening again, except this time it's because people that were displaced from other communities are putting 50% down on the house, right? So now there's no equity problem. Now that's happening with people just moving their white wealth from California to, to, to Washington, right? So they're coming in paying cash. They'll sell their house that they bought in 2011 in California, pay cash for a really nice house in Tacoma. And that's just human migration. So that's, that brings up another question. So you mentioned earlier on, and I think you went through it quickly and because I've understood, I've heard you talk about it before, the millennial age group being basically the largest birth cohort since the boomers uh, have come onto the housing market and like have jobs in many cases. So like they're ready to buy houses, but the boomers are still alive and living in the houses. Well, and what I would say is like every generation, like all the millennials don't have jobs enough to buy houses. Like, but sure. it's such a huge generation that even though only a small portion of them can afford to buy a house, it's still a massive impact, right? So, so what percentage of the upsidedness and mess in the housing market in Pierce County and Tacoma is millennials wanting to buy houses and like having jobs versus the Californians with cash? Like, how does how that break down what the problem is? Well, I, I wish I had that data. I do not. I can give you like allegorical data based on the fact that like I found 130 people realtors last year and just of the people I you know spoke with and got to know I'll tell you that first of all millennial there are millennial Tacomans entering the housing market and there are millennial mm -hmm. Californians fleeing California because they will never be able to enter that housing market for us so they can become homeowners right which is exactly what's happening for people who grew up in Proctor buying in South Tacoma or the East side, right? They're like, I'd love to be a homeowner. I can't be a homeowner in the community I grew up in. I'm going to a more affordable place, right? It's why the Seattle Times just called Spanaway the hottest real estate market in America, right? It's where the opportunity is. So Californians look at Tacoma like they're oh, Spanaway. Spanaway? Span yeah, I know. Okay, all right. Anyway, that's, that's where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> Where are the do-gooder liberals wrong about this conversation? It's so easy to talk about what other people need to do and how bad they are and get distracted by those people storming the Capitol or those people building ugly townhouses in my character-filled neighborhood. You know, like, you got to bring it back to yourself. Where am I complicit? Where's my unearned wealth and power? And how can I give it up in a way that benefits the people who are being impacted by my, my gains? And they, are, they exist. So if you haven't found them yet, you need to figure out how that's happening. And you could start with homeless folks in your community. You can say, you know what, I'm going to take, you know, 10 per, when I sell my house with $200,000 worth of profit, I'm going to find a way to take 20,000 of that and directly redistribute it to people who are made homeless in my community. That would be a way, that'd be, that'd be freaking rad. You know, but like you have to start thinking of it that way, because until you do, how are you going to be able to hold your governor, your legislators accountable to creating policy? Like, do you even understand that aspect? So I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around how you exist in this maelstrom. So you are a realtor. You got tired of selling houses and now you refer realtors as at the same time you talk about how the entire realty like yeah. game is, is an intergenerational and also race crime. So like, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you situate yourself in this? Like, what is, what is the long-term path for you in, in this conversation, in this work? I don't know. Um, I will say the parts I that, that I do know is, I, <laughs> I don't know. As I, you know, you and Doug both know me personally very well. So you know that as I kind of came to understand like the, 
and I think when many white people go through this as they start to understand institutional racism, at first it's like, guys, did you know there's this problem? We need to solve it. And you have a lot of energy around it. And then you start trying things and you realize like, oh, oh, that, it's way worse than I thought. And oh God, like I am personally benefiting. Oh God, I'm responsible. Like I get messages routinely from people who are like, thanks for your stupid website. I'm homeless because of you. And after a few years of reading those comments, I can find it. It's true. It's true. I didn't single-handedly gentrify the city, but I, you know, I certainly have benefited from that gentrification, right? From that oppression. So I, I, you know, I became very personally depressed as I learned about this and took a year off and tried to figure out, okay, what I need is a different career where I engage in capitalism and commerce in a way that is not oppressive. So it turns you, out, Nathan, that, yeah, that, is not, that is not possible. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I, and I, and I spent all my money and uh, still owed the IRS a little bit. And I was like, Oh crap. Like, what am I, what, well, okay. So I'm going to keep engaging in this career that, by the way, you know, you know this about me, like I didn't go to college. My only career of, of, of <laughs> has been real estate and I've been doing it for 16 years. It's like, okay, so I'm going to engage in this. I'm going to benefit from this. It's, it's still wrong what I'm doing. And I have to figure out how to take a percentage of my unearned wealth and power and give it directly to black people who are impacted by this. And so that's been what I've been trying to figure out to do. And I first went to a friend who you introduced me to, Tori Glass, Tori Williams Douglas, you know, and she does anti-racist education and I paid her for her time and I showed her my plan and she was like, this is really great, but like, we'll see if you do it because it's going to be hard to execute. And three months into that plan, there was a pandemic and I was terrified about money and I still did it. You know, I'm accountable to Jasmine. Jasmine is helping me with this. Like I've found people in my life that are helping me figure out how to get rid of some of this money. So, so fascinating to me. So, so you've talked about like the work that is being done in Portland about putting houses and homes in the hands of people who've been displaced. And that's like what the home, and that's like the vision for the homeowner that the homeowner, when they cash out their equity, they give back to the community in some like meaningful, measurable way. What is the work of realtors? So like the folks, the person who's starting off in the career, who is Marguerite, who has adorable bangs, is like 22 now and starts selling houses right now. Uh, like what's their work right now? I think the way that I'm handling it is my way. I'm not saying that other realtors need to do precisely what I'm doing because their understanding and their access and their impact is going to be different, right? Their communities are going to look different, like whatever. But I think the deal is you need to educate yourself and not just like read white fragility and be like, oh my God, that's so terrible. I've had such an awakening, black square. Like you need to continue to educate yourself in the direction of how am I benefiting? What is, where am I complicit? And then find ways in your own life to give up unearned wealth and power. I learned that sentence from Erica Hart. <laughs> like, and as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, okay. So that's where I am. That's where I am. Like if I'm benefiting, I need to figure out how to give it up because it's unearned benefit. The housing market in Tacoma is just on a conveyor belt that so many communities have been on. So like I mentioned, like what's happening in Tacoma happened in Oakland, happened in Sacramento. It's happened in Portland. Are you aware of any communities that were able to arrest this process and like maintain affordable housing? And so this is just this is an eventuality of late stage capitalism. Yeah. And I mean, you can't build your you can't build a tiny house village and prevent this. Right. Like 
I think a lot of the solutions that we have are short-term solutions. And I, I haven't had a chance to listen to your whole interview with the, um, the folks in Tacoma. Like I got to listen to half of it in the shower yesterday, <laughs> but the com- <laughs> I really heard her saying like, look, you have this empty school building, like at the very least let people live in it. And it's like, well, that thing was condemned because it's full of asbestos and other poison lead based things. Like people experiencing homelessness do not deserve that situation either. They don't. And she made the point, like they also don't deserve to be living on the street. And we had like the most intense storm last night. I don't know how anyone living on the streets tent survives that storm, right? Like this is an untenable situation, but we don't get to have cute solutions. Like we're going to make like garden sheds into mini houses. And that's our, that's not a solution. The solution is housing. The solution is permanent housing. Permanent housing is expensive. It will not happen without homeowners paying more taxes without us collectively coming together and making a decision that we refuse to accept people living on our streets, not because we don't like to see it while we're having brunch, but because it's unacceptable and inhumane. Like that's what needs to happen. (laughs) Like you don't build it. You don't tiny house village your way out of this. You build housing specifically. You build, you build in financed forever services to support people in that situation. Is, is, is something broken in us that we basically now accept homelessness as like a matter of fact, like way of life thing? I, 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 I so, so, so I'm really struck and I, I constantly return back to the idea that like the crises that hit us the hardest are the ones that happen slowly yeah. because like all of a sudden you wake up and then there's 25 tents in front of the Starbucks by Lincoln yeah. High School. Yep. Like is, is, have, have we been numbed to the problem of homelessness in in our community and if we are numb to it how do we ever get to the to the solutions to the problem i sound like a one-trick pony here but i'm back to like find your own complicity so like one thing i started doing like where i live there are so many folks living on the streets and so i just started taping five dollar bills to the back of the front door And every time I leave, like I grab two or three. And whenever I see someone, I give them $5. Okay. So this is, and it's not every day. (laughs) This is like a hundred dollars a month, right? (laughs) Like is the goal. But like the first thing that happens is instead of every time you see a person experiencing homelessness, you're not like trying to avoid eye contact because you feel bad about their situation and your relative affluence, right? It's like, okay, like I'm going to at least give them something so that they can like get something to eat get whatever they need. And when I've talked to my white friends about this, like they'll say like, well, yeah, but what if they go buy beer? And I'm like, who cares? I know realtors making $500,000 a year who do like Coke and drink beer and like do all kinds of things to cope with the stress of their life. They don't even live on the streets. Like I don't even know what kind of drugs and alcohol I'd have to be imbibing to survive that experience. Right? Like just mind your own freaking business. Like, But I think when you, and I'm just giving this as an example, like when you start engaging and that is, and I also want to say like, this is not even engaging. Like what I should be doing is involving myself more with mutual aid groups, but I'm very codependent and very worried about like getting, like, I, I, I am like one of those people that's so detached. It's like, well, how do you engage directly with a person and not become completely involved in their life? And that's also like full of problems. Like what I'm saying, I'm a little embarrassed to be saying it with people listening, but this is something I'm wrestling with. Right. So like you start engaging, you start seeing people. And then when you're impact, when you have a policy thing come across, that's imperfect, you still vote for it because you're like, we need to get people housed. 
Like there's no urgency. You know this. I mean, our friends, we, we don't discuss it like over dinner very often. And if we do, we're certainly not talking about how to advocate for policy to get people with roofs over their heads. It's not urgent for us. Why isn't there urgency? I don't like, like I, I, so I left in August of 2019. I've been back to the States three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and each time I've been totally struck by how bad the situation is. But like, why isn't there urgency? Like, I, 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 just, I just can't get my head around that. People don't want to see their complicity. They don't want to see how it's partial. They're responsible. We are all responsible for the situation. But instead, we want to say, oh, well, it's this lawmaker or it's this advocacy group that's the problem or that solution isn't perfect. Like Tacoma Housing Now, like their solution to me, totally imperfect. But they need to be respected because they are trying so hard to do something. And they're bringing a lot of awareness to the problem that, ha- that, that wasn't there. Yeah. And that's, that's my defense of them is that like, people are like, well, they're doing this. I'm like, they're a protest movement. Like their job is to say, Hey, you comfortable a-holes pay attention to this thing. You know what we're doing? We're paying attention to it. And so like, I, I, I root and support them. I root for and support them. Okay. I want to, I want to get us out of here on this question. So you talked about what the homeowner should do with their wealth they've built. You've talked about what the realtor should do. I know that policymakers in the area listen to this show. And so what should somebody who happens to be uh, on a zoning commission or on the city council or on the county council or uh, running one of the neighborhood councils or God, the neighborhood council, by the way, anyway, just s- civic muckety mucks. Like what is their job? What should they be doing? What demands should they be laying? Like what should they be offering as far as, as conversations to the, to the community? The problem is, is that's where like the rest of us owning our complicity and, and, owning our part and advocating comes in. They don't have enough political coverage to take action. If a politician came out and said, you know what we need to do? We need to increase taxes so that we can house everyone in our county. People would lose their freaking minds. Nice, nice white liberal folks with Black Lives Matter signs in their yards would lose their minds. How dare you? So until we cure that, I don't know what politicians can really do. Like, I think they are reflecting in general, the will of the people, which is that's somebody else's problem. So then where does this end up? Like, 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 what is the end game? What's what, like, what is the end goal? It goes, that's the goal. What is the end that we're headed towards that we're trying to avoid? You're asking me this question in public? Implosion. (laughs) Like it doesn't end anywhere well. You cannot have people with incredible wealth living alongside people with nothing without a crisis without eventually violence, like it cannot happen. Look at, look, you've talked about like when you go to Mexico and you see high walls with glass shards all along the top, why are those there? Yeah. Protecting wealthy people from everybody else. Like that's where we're headed. So let's fix it now. Cause that would suck. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll never get over that image. All right, Marguerite, I, I'm really glad we got to wrap. And it's funny, like, we're having full disclosure. Sometimes we record the shows ahead of time. We're having this conversation right now while the impeachment hearings are going in the background. Mm. And so it's interesting for me to talk to you because when we talked in 2015, it was in the 2016. Okay. In 2016, it was Trump in the had just up. become the nominee. There it is. Yeah. The lead up to the election. And so essentially we're having this conversation now on bookends of, of the election. Mm-hmm. A couple of things I'm going to put into the show notes. I'm going to put our prior conversation in the show notes. And I'm also going to put an article or an episode of Reveal Podcast about how the institutional landlords came in and swept up property, like you mentioned. Uh, but Marguerite, we end the show with a thing called Here. 
Hold this L. Hold this L. You know that cancel culture is not real because if it was, Matt Inglesias would not be walking the planet right now because I would have canceled him forever ago. Uh, Marguerite, who is somebody who you think needs to hold an L? Well, I'm just going to go with my people, white real estate agents. You know, if you think you're not part of the problem while we build, I mean, white real estate agents are having the best year ever. And 87% of real estate agents are white. Like we're making money hand over fist off of this disaster. And if you can't see that, take it. There's a think piece to be written. Maybe it has to be by me about the Venn diagram of the teaching profession and real estate and and the demographics of the profession and how that changes uh, perspectives in the profession of the community. There's, There's something to be said about that. Uh, Marguerite, if people want to follow you on the socials, although you're not personally on the socials anymore, uh, where should they look? You can find uh, Move to Tacoma on the Twitters at Move to Tacoma and on the Instagrams. Um, and you can find out everything about me at Move to Tacoma.com or MarguerteMartin.com. Marguerite, I just want to say that I appreciate your reflectiveness and also your friendship. And you truly are one of the most thoughtful people I know. And even though do I want to say this on the record? Yeah, I'll say it on the record. Uh, we're in this weird spot where like you're not in the city and I'm not in the city, but I think we both love the city a lot. And so just thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for being my friend. You too, Doug. <laughs> Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, wear a mask, get a vaccine if you can, and be good to each other. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. I love you just laughed at that. You were like, oh my God, I can't wait. I can't wait to talk about how f***ed up all my sh- is. <laughs> all right. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.